Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. God, I loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking dairy, but not that kind of dairy. I was going to say. <laughs> we are talking the Losers Club, and we're talking probably a smattering of Stephen King. I'm Joe. I'm Trace, and we're also talking about really evil fucking clowns. I I don't know why that wasn't like your lead. <laughs> it's like I don't go for the obvious, Trace. I'm a subtle boy. Well, it's because you hate Stephen King. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't start that again. <laughs> we are talking of it or it chapter one. I'm not really sure. I mean, I think that. It's still considered it, but I don't know. It was well, retroactively named Chapter One. In the closing credits of the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you might hear a giggle on the other end of this microphone, or microphones, or internet connection. But um, we have a guest today, and one who is possibly the most experienced person to talk about this um, that we know, um, outside of Stephen King himself. Ladies and gentlemen, you might know him as the co-founding editor-in-chief for the Chicago-based entertainment website Consequence of Sound, but you may also know him as the co-host of the Losers Club podcast, which is why he's a guest on this episode, because it's a Stephen King podcast, and um, also the co-host of the Halloweenies podcast, the latter of which Joe and I did guest on to discuss A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge. Which um, earned us a bunch of listeners, so thanks for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone, please welcome <laughs> Michael Rothman. Hi. How Hi. Are you? <laughs> Man, we're, we're just immersed in it, but not quite as much as you are. Oh, I know. It's, uh, you know, just when we thought we were done and out of dairy, I'm pulled right back in. And uh, <laughs> it's exciting because it happens to be dropping, you know, pretty much the busiest time of uh, Stephen King between Creepshow, you have his new book, The Institute, there's Mr. Mercedes Season 3, mm-hmm. uh, Into the Tall Grass, which is going to be premiering at Fantastic Fest, Doctor Sleep, Creepshow on Shudder. I mean, holy shit. It's, um, it's a yeah. lot. It's a lot. And we thought 2017 was intense. We pretty much got a reprieve because the Dark Tower sucked, and yeah. we basically <laughs> got to just focus on it back in September of 2017, and oh, those were such easier days now because <laughs> it's just non-stop at this point i felt bad today because i was looking i mean i know that you know specifically the losers club podcast because i saw you all had five episodes on the book back in 28 so back last year and then of course <laughs> you reviewed the movie the first time when it came out so it's yeah you, you just can't get out of dairy apparently yeah i mean i think it's because you know obviously we've taken the, the title of the losers club from the book and so there's this expectation coming into the podcast that even before the idea of talking Stephen King, people think like, oh, this is just going to be an it podcast. And, you know, so we definitely capitalize on the book, the miniseries, the now two movies as much as possible, just because that pretty much is where our core fan base came from. And, you know, the the majority of us, because God, we're at like 
seven or eight. We actually have as many co-hosts now as the actual Losers Club in the <laughs> story. <laughs> Do you have any girls that you all take turn? No, sorry, never mind. Don't. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, no. Um, but we do have a we have, we have a two female co-hosts. So th- uh, coming up to three actually now. So very exciting uh, with uh, some of the podcast. And right now, it's we we just decided to take a break during the busiest moment, which is. Probably not a smart idea marketing-wise, but we were all just burned out, and we need a break before we go into this season, which is going to be just wow. Yeah, right. I believe I believe that. Yeah. And you can't take 27 years off, unfortunately. No, we can't. We can't. And I don't like the sewer, so I can't <laughs> hide in there. <laughs> oh, I won't lie. On this rewatch of this movie, it hit me the most at how fucking disgusting that sewer is. It is I so know. disgusting. <laughs> It really is. And I'm such, I'm like totally the Eddie Kasprak of this group because I, I've, I'm just, I'm a hypochondriac and a total germaphobe. And so I, when we were reading it last October, we had this whole rivalry because I was like, well, I love Richie and I'm trash mouth. And so everyone was like, no, you're not trash mouth, Mike. Mike, you're out, you're Eddie Kasprak. And I mean, nobody really wants to be Eddie Kasprak because, you know, for that spoiling too much. But it's there's there's a lot. But so for for it was just a big rivalry there at that point. But they're right. I am totally Eddie Kasprak. I can't even touch a doorknob without having to rush immediately towards the sink. So um. I am fascinated by this because I know that Joe does not like Richie, and so the fact that he is your favorite character <laughs> is <laughs> this is going to be so fun. Yeah. 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 Richie was one of the reasons why I gave this first movie a low score when I what first is, watched it. Oh my god! I he's so fun. Okay, you know what? We'll stop. We'll get into it. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, yes, we are. Just, oh, and uh, okay. Before we continue, before I get into my little list, I do want to let everyone know that fucking Michael Rothman over here. <laughs> we're, we're recording two weeks early, but uh, and this episode drops two days before the sequel comes out. But Mike Rothman. Michael Rothman did get to see the second one last fucking night, and it makes me so mad. I did, yeah, all basically three hours. I mean, it's it's a three hour movie. Uh, it feels like Terrified. the Avengers Endgame of horror movies for the most part, and it's very similar to Avengers Endgame actually, which is kind of crazy. You mean a film that can't stand on its own? Uh, <laughs> actually, oh that's that, that's true. <laughs> And a lot of, uh, let's just say there's a lot of time traveling here. Not so much with like actual time traveling, but back and forth. You know what, though? The very, very, very first movie that Joe and I ever discussed, and this was in our article, so before the podcast even started. Wait, no, sorry, second movie that we ever discussed was Insidious Chapter 2. And while I do not think that movie can stand on its own, I don't think it's a particularly good movie. I do think that if you, because it's also Chapter 2, if you do watch it immediately after the first one and view it more like the first movie, as two acts and then this this chapter two as the third act i do think it works better absolutely that's exactly the case with it it really is and the fact that andy musietti is teasing like two or like you know he's like oh there's a director's cut of it and then there's also director's cut of it chapter two and you know i'm also thinking about a different cut where it commingles together like if they do a comprehensive cut that has both of them i really do think that's kind of how it should be taken eventually down the road without spoiling too much. (laughs) Will it also be in black and white and have a lot of Uma Thurman's feet? (laughs) No, I was was gonna say, if if we get a fucking, like, combined version of it, then Tarantino has no fucking excuse to not give us that bloody, the whole bloody affair. I I know, what is the holdup on that? Why, I don't understand why he didn't do it. He already did the Hateful Eight. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I don't know. Time better spent would have been re-editing Kill Bill 1 and 2 instead of giving us the Hateful Eight. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Wa- I didn't watch that hatefully. I mean, I've seen the the original, but I, I didn't watch that four hour, you know, miniseries. 
it's interesting, you know, if, if, if for a marketing model, not to get too much on a tangent, but it does apply to it. Um, because what, that, what I've been really pushing is that, like, if they are going for this idea of doing a comprehensive cut, which I think is genius, and they have all this extra mm-hmm. footage, and even if they did, like, if Warner Brothers and New Line, who are making, you know, fucking millions of dollars on this, go, hey, yeah. look, go back, reshoot some of these side stories, and let's just do, like, a comprehensive eight-episode thing on Netflix or whatever the hell their oh, media yeah. network is going to be, Warner Media or whatever then go for it. Like that would be amazing. And I actually think it would really work because the biggest complaint I always hear from constant readers and constant listeners is that this should have been a miniseries. And I agree. Like I, especially at a time now when like television medium is so popular and so in, it seems antiquated to have like this epic novel for two movies. (laughs) It does. But I think that they still made the wiser choice because I think at the end of the day, this is more lucrative a product for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We will get into this because they did not know it was going to be this big. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bullshit. No, 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 no. I, I have two years of production history on the fucking how this movie came to be, and it is yeah. insane. No, I don't. I, I don't think anyone had any idea, and and I and I think it's there's so many variety of factors, and I and I've been really thinking about it, especially while I was writing the second review, and and just it's insane how this became like an insta brand in like two weeks, and. If anything, I'm happy that it exists, though, because, A, again, because we go through periods where, you know, R-rated horror is doing really well, and then, yeah. you know, then it stops making money. So then we get a lot of PG. It comes in waves. Mm-hmm. And also Stephen King adaptations. And this movie made $123 million opening weekend. No Same. one saw that coming. No. No, but I think that they definitely anticipated it was going to be minimum 50 or 60 I, yeah, I think the projections were, yeah, around 60, maybe even 70 million, which is... Like, that's still fucking heyday money. Right, Like, that's is. Scrooge McDuck jumping into a pool <laughs> of coins money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, we're kind of, like, hopping around, but I mean, that's why it has a $35 million budget, though, instead of a $80 million budget. Yeah, and they haven't re- they haven't listed what the budget is for the second one, I don't think, because I, I Googled forever and I could not find one at all. And I imagine it's got to be, like, double... Well, and we will talk about it, but I think the one area that the budget did not go to in this movie, the first one at least, was the CGI. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, listeners, if we, we we will not be doing any spoilers for Chapter 2. If there is a spoiler, we'll bleep it out so you can listen ahead. Wait, and Trace, why are we not doing spoilers for it Chapter 2? <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. Because we're doing a Patreon episode on it, Chapter 2, which will come out next week. So if you want to hear that and you have money, go there and pay for it. And you can listen to us talk about it, Chapter 2. And I'm sure Joe will hate it and I will think it's pretty good. So we can argue about it there. Yes. And if you want even more fucking Stephen King, you can listen to our mini-sode, which is all about his books and his adaptations. And we somehow managed to get that in at 33 minutes, and that's coming out on Friday. Possibly the longest mini-sode we've ever had. (laughs) Oh, right, because Michael's a patron! (laughs) (laughs) I am. I I was just listening to the 47 meters down because... It's funny because like all the movies that I have seen recently are all under the Patreon. So I was like, "Fuck, I, I have to, I have to be a Patreon." Also, just because I love the show and I want to support it. But these episodes are so much fun because they, you know, they're so current, so in and now. And the forty-seven meters down is hilarious too because I love the speculation of whether or not John Corbett and Nia Long are going to be in it. Like longer <laughs> because that's exactly what I had. I kept wondering when the hell Nia Long is coming back. Like where the hell did she go? 
Spoiler <laughs> alert, she does not come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not because of the water, but, um, you know, yeah. anyway. No, she's just one, <laughs> one, one scene and done. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, yeah. go check that out uh, next week. I mean, we haven't recorded it yet because we haven't seen the fucking movie, but it'll be really good, I'm sure. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. It Chapter 1 came out September 8th, 2017, released by Warner Brothers Pictures, and has a runtime, a mercifully brief, ha ha ha, of 135 <laughs> minutes, made for a budget of $35 million. Mm-hmm. Do we like the length of this movie? Is it appropriate, given everything that is going into it? I actually think it's a pretty swift 135 minutes. I mean, I just revisited it a couple of days ago, and mm-hmm. I, I really think that this movie... What I love about Muschietti's direction and even the script, which I really do feel like it still pulls a ton from Chase Palmer and Kerry Fukunaga's script, and especially having seen yeah, the second yes. one and leaving it with one of my least favorite people in Hollywood, Gary Doberman, is that <laughs> I really think that it allows itself to breathe, but it also really moves. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with Muschietti's very, like, angelic sort of direction if that makes any sense you know like it it, it, it moves does. up and then it moves down and then moves up and it moves down and for having a cast this big i really do think that it really affords the the sort of 135 minutes in fact i would almost even take like five to ten more minutes to give a little bit more to bowers and company mike uh, I, I was gonna say Mike. So, um, listeners, you can't see this, but um, so I, I have my cheat sheet and I have my list of actors. I didn't have an extra space for one of the kids, and I was like, "Well, who am I gonna leave out?" And I left off poor chosen Jacobs as Mike because I was like, "Well, the film doesn't care about him, so why should we?" And that is totally true. Racism. It's yeah. I mean, it's it is bizarre that like there's a lot of stuff that I mean, he's separate from the group in the novel. Mm-hmm. And so that, there's an argument to be made there. But there are so many good stories with Mike as a kid that like would totally fit in to give this a little bit more. But I, I don't know if it would fit with the sort of chemistry that's on screen happening, you know, within the scenes. It's also because they give Ben, the kid in this movie, a lot of Mike's adult version, like story stuff. Because, you know, Mike, as an adult in the book, has a lot of the backstory of Pennywise, mm-hmm. like well, what's going on. And because they didn't know if they were going to get a second one out of this, they gave it all to Ben to put in the first movie, which is fine. Yeah. Don't you always love when they say, like, well, we don't know if there's going to be another, you know, sequel. It's like the it's like the Duffer Brothers saying, like, well, if we get a season four, I'm like, what are you fucking kidding me? Like, you have marketing <laughs> dollars with Nike and Burger King. Like, you're going to mm-hmm. get a season four. It's just astounding that, like, just take the extra legwork to make sure that you put the notes in for, for the second movie because you know it's going to happen. I mean... So, yeah. I'm going to do an oral history of how the fuck this movie came to be. And it is two years of history. But wait, 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 wait. Fantastic. I haven't been sleeping well, so I'm just going to, like, curl up on wait. my couch for a couple minutes. If it's too dry, we're going to cut it out. If it's fun, because I need y'all to interject. And we just did this for an episode coming out in October, because we're recording ahead of time. So we, you know, Joe and I can cover Tip and Fantastic Fest. Wait, why are we gathering together in Fantastic Fest? Be- well, I was going to say over the end of the episode. All right, save it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I think it worked okay in that episode. We'll see. So, anyway, this movie was in production, like, in development for so fucking long. There's basically three stages. And, yes, I am fucking stealing this from the Wikipedia. (laughs) Ooh, due diligence. I know. But they have footnotes, and I checked them, and they mostly checked out. So, this movie was announced on March 12, 2009. Uh, what, eight years before it came out? It was Variety. They said they were going to bring it together. And David Kaj- Kajganich was going to yeah, adapt the novel. I couldn't say his name either. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but here's the thing. So he's gone on to write some really good shit. 
at the time, though, in 2009, he had only written The Invasion, which is the Daniel Craig, Nicole Kidman movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Blood Creek, which is the Joel Schumacher, like, Nazi movie, like a Nazi horror movie, which I haven't seen. Uh doesn't even ring a bell oh the poster of it is like a bald guy with like a swastika it's like like a carved on the back yeah, of his head yeah trace it's fine sweetie you it's said fine. you've got three acts i'm we sorry don't need the i'm sorry, filmography I'm sorry. Okay, of this okay. guy okay, wait. but he has since written a bigger splash suspiria's remake and he is the creator and screenwriter for season one of the terror yeah. so interesting idea but at the time it was going to be a it was going to be one r-rated two-hour film set in the 80s and they announced in June of 2010, so over a year later, that he was also rewriting his script. Then that was kind of it for him. So then Kerry Fukunaga jumps on board in June of 2012. And this is hot after True Detective Season 1, right? No, yes. this is before. Oh, oh fuck. Because okay. True Detective Season 1 was in the early 2014, which is really peculiar that he was able to be attached to this so early on. Hmm. And I'm not super familiar with a lot of Fukunaga's work outside of True Detective. Yeah, I, I'm not either. I mean, like, you know, Beast of, no, uh, Beast of No Nation, which I think was his film in 2015, yes. 2016. Right. Great. When it was announced that he's replacing, you know, Danny Boyle for Bond, I was like, oh, okay. I guess he had nothing going on. <laughs> because mm-hmm. you're right. Like, I mean, this was his follow-up for True Detective. I mean, he had been working on it for so long that it was, like, cleared his slate. He didn't really have any other things attached to it. So, like... When True Detective finished, like, I mean, the first thing people that were familiar with the novel were thinking, we were like, oh, my God, it is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is in the right hands. He handled, like, the sort of country, southern gothic spiritualism of the first season of True Detective. This is going to carry over great into it. And then everything falls apart. <laughs> yeah. I remember being very disappointed when he came off the project and then being like, oh, it's that guy from Mama, which yeah. is okay i guess i've never seen mama but y'all are jumping ahead in time so fuck off <laughs> well then get to it speedy all right so wait so um but wait michael you said that true detective was the beginning of 2014 yeah i'm pretty i'm pretty sure it was the beginning of 2014 okay i, I want to say like me like february to april okay so he's announced june of 2012 there's like radio silence for two years um may of 2014 you know warner brothers is like hey we're gonna put this in new line cinema they're gonna handle this shit they did well with that Lord of the Rings thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then, end of 2014, it's December. The producer, Dan Lin, who had been on this project since Kajganik, since 2009, he's like, okay, cool. We're going to make it two films. First film's the kids. Second film is the adults. Makes total sense. So, all seems fine. Come 2015, uh, in May, this is when Will Poulter is announced to play Pennywise. And I'm... Oh, God. Hmm. I've got to say, I would have been really into this, mm-hmm. only because I really like that movie Where the Millers that he's in with Jennifer Aniston and Emma I Roberts. Too. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I do too, though. I really, I think that I think it's it's such an underrated movie that gets it is. enough. It's one of the best afternoon watches on HBO. It's such a stupid movie, but I love mm-hmm. the chemistry of the characters in that. That yeah. yeah. There's something to be said for a stupid movie. Sometimes yeah. that's exactly what you want. Now, yeah. Joe, you, you gave a real oomph remark to that. Have you seen that movie? <sighs> I've seen clips. Okay, no. <laughs> it's so funny. I have made my opinion on American comedy repeatedly. I am a British at heart person, so I prefer a dry wit. I don't need a testicle on the chin. Yeah, this is pretty much that. So, <laughs> Okay, we're not talking about movie 47 here. Like That is the 
Hugh Jackman testicle on the chin movie. Wow, way to dig deep for that one, Trey. <laughs> you reference a testicle on the chin. That's the only movie I've seen where there's a testicle on someone's chin. Really? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> there is a threat to uh, Will Poulter by Jason Sudeikis that he has to suck some uh, guy off. I believe to get away from a hostage situation, I think in it. Yes. And it leads to like a really, it actually is a pretty funny gag when they're like trying to plan it or something like that. And he's like, all right. And then you're just going to go inside his dick. And it's just like, it's pretty good. But <laughs> it also, yeah. it also has Joe, as you know, Jennifer Aniston and Emma Roberts saying fuck a lot, which is one of mm-hmm. my favorite things. But anyway, right. sorry, this is not a We're the Millers podcast. So anyway, <laughs> thank God. So that is May 4th. 4th, 2015. May 25th, 2015, Fukunaga drops out. Yeah, so it was rumored that it was because of the budget. Because New Line was like, oh, it's $35 and he was like, oh, I can't work with that money. His direct quote is, I was trying to make an unconventional horror film. It didn't fit into the algorithm of what they knew could spit, of what they knew they could spend and make money back on based on not offending their standard genre audience. He was fine with the budget, but I guess, yeah, just conceptually, it wasn't going to work. And then, um, of course, he goes, we invested years and so much anecdotal storytelling in it. Chase Palmer, the one of the credited screenwriters, and I both put our childhood in that story. So our biggest fear was that they were going to take our script and bastardize it. So I'm actually thankful that they're going to rewrite the script, which I guess Doberman did, which we'll get into in a minute. But yeah, yeah like they're still credited. Both Both Fukunaga and Palmer are credited. Well, I think because a lot of people see the genesis of that original script in the final product, so much so that they had to give them credit. Because mm-hmm. mm. he mentions like personal stories, so I'm wondering how much of that made it yeah, in the script. That really did catch my eye when he was saying that. And that, first off, I love the fact that he like slams the whole algorithm thing because that's totally what happened. I mean, we read the original script, and it's pretty dead on with what actually goes on with the movie. But there are some really really weird crude stuff that happens like the stuff that happens in uh with stan uh in the temple Mm -hmm. um when he's doing this bar mitzvah like there's a lot there that was taken out and there's a lot like it involves like an older woman very similar to the shining actually Mm. and so there's a lot of really like hyper pseudo-sexual shit that goes on there that really does fit into like what they were conveying with like a lot of the true detective off-screen stuff that you don't really see um in that season and it's a darker story for sure, but honestly, like they kept a lot for um, the actual end up, you know, what was ending up in the script. And of course, you know where Dar- Doberman fits in because it's all the fun stuff that would appear in pretty much every fucking Conjuring movie. Like, oh, yes. this weird, creepy creature that floats around and all this, you know. So, well, and the, and that's the thing with Doberman. So, um, uh, everyone. So Doberman is his biggest credits. He's done all the Annabelle films. He's done The Nun. He's done The Curse of La Llorona. And he also did this movie called Wolves at the Door, which I haven't seen, but it is Katie Cassidy in what is essentially, I think it's a Manson movie, but not really a Manson movie. It's set during the same time period, and it's the same plot as the Mansons, but it's just not with the same name. I'm going to bet that there's a really cool scene in that that movie where it's really quiet in the living room and then they hear something <laughs> and it's a dark hallway and something runs out really fast and and then you know you pan over and they're gone and then they look over and it's right behind them like it's the same gag that he keeps repeating over and over again do you think it'll be a woman in like a flowy dress, <laughs> maybe played by a man? Oh my gosh. I made the joke with, because I, I, I saw um, Lola Rona at, at an early, like I had to review it for this. That was actually one of the one of the only reviews I've done this year, so sadly. Wait, was it at South By? 
No, I didn't uh. stay for it. And I was like, I, I, I like left early on, but I saw it here in Chicago and it literally, I made the joke that I was like, in the review, I was like, it feels as if they basically like appropriated culture and then also just took a sprite for the nun and then put a dress on it. It yeah. literally like, it's, it's just yeah. oh, God, the creature it's... design is identical in every fucking film it's and insane. it's so monotonous if people want to hear our thoughts on la urena we also patreon. have a patreon episode of that and we basically say nearly the exact same thing where it's like even hit though the snooze button i was more warm to it than i was on the fucking nun which i fucking hate oh, i hate yeah because <laughs> one has tessa farmiga and one yeah. has linda cardellini <laughs> yeah. i know and i get to meet linda cardellini and it was so fun okay um, so let's move on because we're now 25 minutes in. i'm sorry yeah so anyway so this is may of, 20, of 2015 Two months go by. We got mid-July. Andy Muschietti is uh, announced. Will Poulter at the time is still attached to the project. And I think this pretty much went... Oh, he drops out. Oh, God, this is fucked up. So in April of 2016, so almost a full year later, Poulter drops out of the film. Hmm. Muschietti's been in the film for, you know, like 10 months. And boom, Poulter drops out due to sketching conflicts. He went to do Bandersnatch, I bet. Sure. Black Mirror. Oh, okay. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. It apparently had like a year-long development process, so I don't know how long the actors were involved, but anyway. You know, when I saw that he had a conflicting thing, I was wondering what it was, and that that absolutely is it. Because other than the kid from Dunkirk, I can't imagine in that movie, and like that movie, the shooting, I think, for Dunkirk was pretty fast. Like, it probably makes sense that Poulter was going right to that and knowing that Black Mirror was this like established thing was like, all right, Fukunaga's gone, I'm jumping on this. Yeah. And Doberman, um, it was announced in February of 2016. Sorry, I'm going back two months. Um, February of that year is when it was announced that Doberman was rewriting Fukunaga and Palmer's script. And then, yeah, two months later, Poulter drops out in April of 2016. But, weirdly enough, that, that same fucking day, New Line announces that they're going to release it September 8th, 2017, which is the day it came out. Mm-hmm. Well, because they deduced by algorithm this was the best <laughs> time, and then they said, stick yeah. to the fucking schedule. We need this movie in theaters. But this is when things really come... It kind of makes me sad, though, seeing how close it all is together, because, again, you got April, Poulter drops out, May... Oh, the, uh, May's that important. June of 2016, all the casting's locked in. Here's something that's interesting that I've been really thinking about lately, because it's inarguable that... Stranger Things is largely one of the reasons why this film was so huge. It's set in the 80s. The kids are all there. I wondered if then they had, like, whiff of that show when they had Finn Wolfhard cast and knowing that that was going to be, like, a smoking gun for them. Because Stranger Things was already... No, no, no. It was not until July of 2016, which is crazy, you know? So, yeah, that's the thing. And then also someone... Because Finn Wolfhard replaced one of the other Stranger Things kids or something or or one of the other Stranger Things kids sorry I haven't seen season two or three I haven't watched since season one so I'm really behind on it but one of the other Stranger Things kids was cast in this movie and had to drop out for something and then oh, they wow. brought in Finn Wolfhard but anyway <laughs> so ca- casting's locked in in June they start filming July of 2016 they finish in September and then yeah so in August of 2016 which is again Stranger Things have been out for almost a, a month the producer <laughs> I don't know if this is really important, but whatever. He spoke of the piece's comparison to Netflix's Stranger Things, with Lee describing it, I'm sorry, Lynn, as an homage to 80s movies while remarking, I think a great analogy is actually Stranger Things, and we're seeing it on Netflix right now. 
It is very much an homage to 80s movies, whether it's classic Stephen King or even Spielberg. Do we have a sound effect for a wet fart noise that I can (laughs) insert here? (laughs) So, yeah, then, yeah, they're done, and then boom. September 8th, the film comes out. It opens to $123 million. It ends with $328 million domestically, with a worldwide gross of $700 million for this R-rated two-plus-hour movie. Unreal. Mm -hmm. It's just unreal. And then no one ever talked about it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so reception was very positive. You got an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.23 out of 10. Audience score of 84% and Metacritic of 69 out of 100. I mean, people really liked this movie, except for Joe and uh, Lindsay Romaine. I don't think she listened to this, but she's also a critic in Austin who does not like this movie. I don't not like this movie. I just don't love this movie the way that other people seem to. And honestly, I think your opinion is starting to become more of the actual general consensus amongst, like, not only just even critics, but also, like, I think a lot of horror fans. I think there were a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people were really hot on it when it came out because it was like, holy shit, Stephen King's back and he's, like, in the mainstream and it's not a shitty movie. And also, I think there's the exhaustion of the type of scares that are in this movie that maybe in hindsight people are like, well... It's a lot of jump scares. Okay, it's not that scary. So this is where we'll get into the discussion of what this movie is and what this story is. Because I would argue that while it is a horror film and a horror story, it's more so a coming-of-age film. 100% agree. Yeah. With, like, scary parts or horror-y parts. I mean, it's like Stand By Me, I mean, which is also Stephen King. Which is why the fact that it's not very scary doesn't bother me yeah Yeah, no i no but that's that's what i put in my original review in 2017 it was like basically boiled down to like yeah pennywise is kind of annoying but man those kids are great and i was crying like it's that's and that's what all that mattered to me like god what did i tweet the other day it was it was like a coming of age story in a halloween costume that's kind of how i see it like i the, the horror elements and that's kind of how the book is for me also like i actually care more about the character dynamics and where they go as opposed to like Pennywise is more of a hindrance at that point. So for me, I think the reason why I did like it so much going out was that it is so much harder to nail the coming of age aspects than it is to nail the horror, I would I would argue. And the fact that they did get that is almost like lightning in a bottle sometimes. And everyone always tries to replicate the Stand By Me thing, but they did it. And that's a really strong suit, I feel. Mm-hmm. And without having seen Mama, I think Muschietti does a fine job directing Mm -hmm. mama is also quite good but it suffers from some really bad cgi that people find unforgivable Mm -hmm. well but it's basically it's all about grief and being a mother it's like up there with the babadook in terms of bad motherhood stories and it's jessica chastain so you know he he made which is 100 (laughs) percent how she ended up in this sequel (laughs) yeah well that and the fact that she's got red hair there's only so many actresses in hollywood so (laughs) Honestly, I was pulling for Amy Adams. I really was. I was too. I was too. Especially after Sharper Objects. Jesus. Yes! Oh. I think that would have been too confusing for people. Yeah. You have to remember, people have the intellect of roaches. So they would have been like, wait, is this an HBO movie? And you're like, no, bitch. It's a different thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I know we don't really need to, but Joe, do you want to go over what this movie's about? All right. Plot summary. The year is 1988. Sick Bill, Jaden Lieberher. No, Lieb- Lieberher? Wait, this is something weird. It's Le- I've been saying Lieberher, but apparently he now goes by Jaden Martell. 
He's like what? changed his name. No, I'm not fucking kidding. Because everything I've been seeing, like um for um the lodge, because he's in that movie, yeah, has been Jaden Martell. And I was like, I thought it was Lieberher. And then I saw you know it, and it was like Jaden Lieberher. Yeah, no, he now goes by Jaden Martell. That's his stage name. So I wonder if some fucking producer, his agent, was like, listen. <laughs> Your name is difficult to pronounce by stupid <laughs> podcasters. We're going to need you to dial it down. Yeah, so it is Jaden Martell now, but in this movie, it is Jaden Lieberher or Lieberher or whatever the fuck you want to say. All right, so he plays Bill. Bill <laughs> makes a paper boat for his younger brother, Georgie, Jackson Robert Scott, and sends him out into the rain where Georgie encounters Pennywise the Clown, Bill Skarsgård, in a sewer drain. Georgie is lured close enough to bite, losing an arm before he is dragged away. Flash forward to the start of summer 1989. More children have gone missing and a curfew is in effect. Stuttering Bill and his friends, <laughs> cruel jokester Richie, Finn Wolfhard. Cruel jokester? <laughs> Excuse me, who is delivering this song? I'm sorry, apparently you, because no one is going to call Richie a cruel jokester. <laughs> uh, your mama begs to differ. Uh. <laughs> Neurotic asthmatic Eddie, Jack Dylan Grazer, and pragmatic Jew Stan, Wyatt Olaf, who I debated whether or not to say that because it's offensive, but also because, again, the film always seems to care about that. So, pretty much. They all run afoul of Henry Bowers, Nicholas Hamilton, and his gang, who are also targeting Mike, Chosen Jacobs, seemingly the only black kid in town, as well as plump new boy Ben, Jeremy Ray Taylor. When Ben fights back against the bullies, he runs into Bill and the others down at the Barrens. Patrick Hawksetter, the tallest member of Henry's gang, is attacked and killed in the sewers. At the drugstore, resident dirty girl Beverly, Sophia Lillis, helps them steal supplies to treat Ben's knife wounds. After an impromptu haircut, she joins them for a swim at the quarry. Quarry. Yep, quarry. Before Ben (laughs) reveals his project documenting the history of child disappearances in Derry. As all of this is happening, each child has individual scary encounters. Eddie is chased around a derelict house by a leper. Ben is attacked by a headless corpse in the library. Stan is chased by a woman from a painting at his temple. Mike sees a meatpacking factory fire, and Beverly's entire bathroom explodes with blood. And poor Bill gets to see his brother, who's dead. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good scene, but um, yeah, sure, continue this awful summary. <laughs> so they bond cleaning up Beverly's bathroom, getting into a rock fight with Bowers' gang, and discover that they've all seen terrifying visions that appear connected to the bad things that happen in Derry every 27 years. Checking the map, they realize it likely lives in the derelict house where all the sewers connect. A cursory investigation of the house separates Bill, Eddie, and Richie, and they only survive because Bill realizes the illusions are not real and beverly shoves a fire poker through pennywise's head bill and richie fight fracturing the group in august two survivors fight their abusers so bowers stabs his father in the neck and his father is the sheriff and beverly hits her father who is a sexual abuser with the back of a toilet when beverly is abducted by pennywise the group reunites mike must first face bowers who is presumably killed when he is shoved down the well Down below, they find Beverly and other abducted children suspended in the air amidst relics of carnival trash, seemingly catatonic. Ben wakes her with a kiss, but he is captured by Pennywise. No. And then Bill is captured by Pennywise. 
the fucking B names in this goddamn movie. Uh, but he is captured by Pennywise, who barters with the others to let him have Bill, and he will let them live. They refuse and battle him collectively, sending him back into 20 years of hibernation, where Bill believes that Pennywise will starve. As the summer ends, the group forms a circle and makes a pledge to reunite in the future if the clan returns, and Bill and Beverly kiss. End chapter one. So, I will say, the biggest complaint i have with this movie is a whole fucking section of the third act and mm -hmm. it is they fight and break up which is a rom-com trope that joe and i have discussed before yes you love that one i fucking oh i hate <laughs> it so much it's like oh we're fighting oh we're gonna break up for five minutes of screen time to just create some conflict that no one cares about and and beverly as a damsel in distress the worst fucking decision you can make in this movie that 10 or 15 minutes of screen time i actively hate but other than that, the funny would... thing is, is that I think that they, hmm, my belief is that they don't actually see Beverly as a damsel in distress because she gets these moments throughout the film where she's active and then she actually faces Pennywise down and she isn't scared of him, which is why he has to stun her with carnival mouth lights. Dead lights. You read the book, Joe. <laughs> I read it when I was like 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and honestly, it's a, it's a hard book to remember all the stuff, too, because there's just so much in that book. There is. Did you know Jaws is in the book? Like, yes. It's crazy. The two things that you mentioned, and again, I'm going to hold back on and, and spoil anything, but they are two things they absolutely address in the second one. Oh, good. Now, do you think it's in response to criticism, I, I do think so now, more than... The, good. Hearing that, uh, hearing that you say that, like, I, I really do think it is. They give some sort of agency to it and yada, yada, yada. But I agree. I mean... The whole third act of this movie, there is an energy that keeps going all the way up until the Nibold house, which honestly is my least favorite scene in the whole movie. Wait, 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 wait. The first Nibold house or the second Nibold house? The the one with the three doors and what? All that That's stuff. the yeah. best sequence of the movie. No, no. My my problem with that is the whole reliance on CGI. Now, my my biggest thing yeah, that I can't stand with this film is. They have Bill Skarsgård, who, with the exception of the fact that, like, they managed to make Bill Skarsgård hidden in Pennywise, which I don't think is a great idea, because, as we saw with Castle Rock last year, he's, mm -hmm. like, legitimately alarming to watch. Like, he's, he's, yeah. he's very mystifying in the sense that I, I think he's, like, beyond attractive, but at the same time, there's something about him that's fucking messed up and scary, which is, it's, it's like the best type of fear to have was when you get, you know, you get pulled in and you're like, no, 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 wait a second. There's something wrong with this guy. Mm -hmm. And he does that to perfection on his own in Castle yeah. Rock. And he's has hardly any of that in this movie because he's all stunted by this like CGI work and him zooming forward into the fucking screen. And they do that so much in the Nibolt house that that, that whole sequence just gets exhausting after a while. But, but when he is just him and it's just him going up towards Eddie, which is the yeah. best part of that sequence, it's very terrifying. I like with the physicality of him coming out of the fridge and him actually being able to be scars guard with uh, against Jack down Grazer is great. But like, most of the time, it's just this haunted house hijinks that Doberman loves to do that kills me. So, yeah, for me, it's like, that's when yeah. things kind of fall apart for me. But, okay, so you're blaming part of it on Doberman, which I totally get. But it's also, <laughs> whose choice is it to use those effects to make the scare? Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming on Muschietti? Yeah. And 
I agree. Like, the, the Richie in the clown room and him jumping towards him, like, yeah, it's stupid. But I also love the doors. I love the scary, very scary, not scary at all. <laughs> but you love that because that's a really adept blend of horror and comedy, right? Agreed. Like, you, you know when you yeah. look at those doors that there isn't a safe option. They're all going to be bad. So when they go for the not scary, you're like, ah, oh, you idiot. Which is really <laughs> funny that they do that as if, like, I... I because I, I forgot that they went through that door. And I'm like, y'all, why wouldn't you go for the scariest one? Because uh-huh. that's probably the one that's the least scary. <laughs> that stuff is great. I think what also bothers me is just how unimaginative it is where they're like, all right, so we have a killer clown in this. Why don't we have one of them actually scared of clowns? Like, wait, no. Like, that, that just seems so, like, last minute. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. We forgot to, the, you know, the badass, the, you know, the cruel um, jokester. Um, is that what you call it? Uh, Richie. Yes. Mm-hmm. We got to come up with something. Well, what do we have? Well, we got a killer clown here. Well, we should make him scared of clowns. Like, wait, no, no, come up with well, something else. Because in the book, he has the Paul Bunyan confrontation in the mm-hmm. book, which is not in the first one, and I don't yeah. know anything about the second one. But the movie does this too, where you know they each have like their own, they have their own set piece with Pennywise. They're each scared of something, and they each encounter something. Yeah. What was Richie's in the book? Was it the werewolf? It's uh, it is the werewolf. It's like the werewolf in the um, the Paul Bunyan statue for sure. Gotcha. And they really do double down on that for sure. Almost like it is the, um, like a Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that. You know, like when you'd see like Nightmare 4 and she's like, oh, bugs. And you're like, well, that's going to play up like later on down the road. And yeah, it is kind of interesting how they lean into that. And I've seen a lot of illusions lately, um, especially even the last 24 hours with the second one. Like this idea of um, it being almost like a supplement for a nightmare on all the streets since that franchise is defunct now like well, yeah speaking of though so because one of the things I, I i promise i'll stop bringing up the book so much because this isn't about the book but because it's not in the 50s with the kids and it's a lot of them have fears of certain monsters that are from the movies of that time like the mummy the werewolf i don't yeah. know my skin playing on nostalgia Right, and because this is a Warner Brothers New Line production, and they even... Wait, are you suggesting that there's some kind of nefarious corporate synergy plan? No, no, <laughs> fucking hear me out. And because they reference Nightmare on Elm Street 5, because this is set in 1989, yep. why... I mean, obviously, I know why they didn't do it, but do you think there was ever a temptation to fucking no. have one of them afraid of uh, Freddy Krueger? Nope. I mean, they were pretty insistent in some of the interviews. One of the interviews, I can't remember where, he basically says that, like, look, we're not going to use any of the monsters that are in the book. We want to update it and modernize it. I I want to say that he str- said that they didn't want to do any pop culture stuff because they felt that it was going to distract age from, badly. like, the actual... St- in age badly, too, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree. I mean, like, let's modernize by having one of the boys afraid of a leper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, 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 because I know that I take that less as less afraid of the leper and more afraid of just the idea of germs. And also, I'm assuming he was raised religiously, so he knows what a leper is. I'm also just kind of bummed out that, like, the werewolf thing didn't make it in because we never really see any good werewolf stuff. I mean, what was the last, like, werewolf thing other than, like, Underworld and Twilight and, oh, God, Cursed? Funny you mentioned that because we actually just did an episode on Good Manners, which is a lesser known but still werewolfy um, Brazilian film. Uh-huh. That's very good, but, you know, it's also two hours and 15 minutes long. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Not the greatest of CGI effects on that werewolf either, so... Yeah. <laughs> I think that's still the monster that people can't seem to crack. No. It's like they need Stan Winston, and if he's not involved... Well, I guess he's dead now, but... <laughs> but even i believe he was involved on cursed and then he got fired because it was cut budget cuts and stuff but 
Yeah. Well, who who knows about that movie? Who knows what happened? But (laughs) I think this is a good segue then, because I'm really curious about you fucking Joe. Mm -hmm. These characters. (laughs) I respond to that, apparently. (laughs) You fucking Joe. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so one of the things that really annoys me in films that deal with children in particular is when you've got a prick child for no good reason and it's played as though it's the pluckiest and funniest of thing but he is this film clearly (laughs) thinks that richie is funny he is oh he's so funny in this he is not funny, guys. Oh, my God. Wait. I, I think something he happened He is literally just a walking, like, your mother wears combat boots joke. And it gets really old and it gets really repetitive. It's a grating performance. And it literally feels like he just carried the character over from Stranger Things. Well, here, here's my hot take on Finn Wolfhard for this. I think this made him a bigger star than Stranger Things. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that because this movie allows him to actually be fun... Whereas Mike Wheeler is probably the most exhausting and annoying character in Stranger Things. And especially in season three where he's just a fucking little shit. But I just finished season three and then did the movie rewatch and it feels like the exact same performance. So I think think he's definitely taken it one way or the other. He's pulled one into the other. Well, you're going to definitely love Ghostbusters next next year. (laughs) I saw he was in that. I was like, oh, Joe. (laughs) I don't mind him. It's just, hey, if you're going to be in multiple properties, maybe learn how to vary your fucking performance. Yeah, he does this thing where he just, like, shakes his head a lot when he talks. But in this one, I I don't know. He cracks me up because I was that kid as a, growing up. Like, I was the loud, obnoxious little shit that made fun of everyone because I was so insecure about myself. Right. And that's what I was going to say. No, because, yeah, Richie is very obviously insecure. Yes. And Joe, do do you remember if you felt that way when you read the book too? Like you did not like Richie in the book? Uh, To be honest, I can't remember a lot of the book except for the fact that kind of what Michael was talking about, that it really is leaning more into the idea of growing up and trying to make friends with people when you don't fit in. But Mm -hmm. I don't remember character specifics or even like a lot of the set pieces. I'm like, yeah, that sort of sounds familiar. I could also see him being your closet homosexual out of all these kids. I mean, not that they're... So that is the other thing. So when I was looking around for queer readings of this film, for Mm -hmm. feminist readings, for race-related, the only real thing that pinged any radar was people thinking that Richie and Eddie are kind of like closet homosexuals. But they're children, right? So it's hard to read into it too much. Well, they also like clearly quote-unquote objectify Bev when, I mean, I think it's more of just like childhood curiosity of being like, oh my god, there's a girl. But Mm-hmm. I knew I remember there was a lot of criticism about that scene just because it was like, oh, they're just objectifying Bev. And I was like, well, that's what kids would do back then. And like, it's funny. Just, just, <laughs> it is. It really is. Like, but I, I actually, the shipping of, of Eddie and also Richie is really interesting because, you know, I mean, obviously every show is, I mean, they were shipping like Steve and. Yeah. And, I, yeah. Uh, oh, Dustin. God, and, and, well, oh, God. No, 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 no. That would have been really problematic. <laughs> no, it was Billy and Steve. Oh right, that they're yeah. doing, and um, and I and I, it was really interesting. I was wondering actually if they were going to do be doing that for the season three, but like with this, it's I think it's subtle enough that I actually really do like a lot of the the shipping that's online about it because it does factor into like Richie's insecurity for sure, and which why I think he like post like there's a lot of posturing on his on his part, and yeah. I could see that making sense, you know. Well, and it makes sense too. Not to speculate or unfairly generalize, but if you think about children growing up in a small town in what 
I've always assumed was more of a kind of conservative Midwest scenario. Like, I don't know where... Is it Derry, Maine? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know how conservative Maine is, but it doesn't look like the biggest of towns. They're not interacting with a lot of worldly folks, per se. It's got Mm -hmm. a very nostalgia tone to it. So I think it's not unfair to read into some of these ideas that these kids are... They're probably a little repressed in a number of different ways. They're not getting a lot of sexual education in terms of exposure. So Beverly is clearly the first girl that they've ever seen half naked, which is why they're all super embarrassed, but also curious. But if you did have feelings for a friend of yours, I think the most natural reaction would be to make fun of it Mm -hmm. and to try to play it off like, no, you're a fucking asshole. And honestly, like that whole sort of repression feels like Pennywise seems to be like a commentary on that for Derry itself. You know, mm-hmm. it's just these like these ideas that like the small town sins that just have festered and festered and festered. And, and a lot of that does deal with just people turning and ignorance. And, and I, that's why I kind of love about this movie is that. You know, while Pennywise doesn't scare me, the actual town around does. Well, the parents are all way worse than Pennywise. They're not biting anybody's arms off, but there's no good parents. There's only absent parents and The movie doesn't do a... Well, I would argue even the book doesn't do a great job of of making a case for how how much influence Pennywise has. Because the movie has that bit where, you know, Ben is being attacked by Henry, and, you know, the car drives by and ignores Mm -hmm. him, but then you see the balloon go up. So then it's like, okay, cool. Is Pennywise influencing the parents to be this way? Yeah. Like there's that program that everyone seems to be watching as if they're like hypnotized. And I've seen a lot of people theorize online that that's like theorized. No, it's true. You know, (laughs) like um, that that could possibly be like him like broadcasting because obviously it affects Bowers, you know, so yeah. Well, and if you think about it, the only store, like, we never see them go to get food in a diner. We never see them go to the movie theater. We see them go multiple times to the apothecary. Mm -hmm. So The pharmacy? Yes. (laughs) But it's a small town, so they probably call it that. (laughs) No, 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 no. People don't say apothecary after, like, the 1700s. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm reading Harry Potter at the same time as I'm recording. (laughs) Look, to Joe's credit... We have this little quaint uh, neighborhood here called uh, Lincoln Square, and it's very where they have cobblestones and they have like you know an India ice cream place and apothecary is one of the places that they call it as if like mm-hmm. you know it's like it's... retro nostalgia exactly okay. yeah, yeah you know what <laughs> in Austin we had it closed down but we had a place called apothecary and it was a wine bar ah oh wow <laughs> that's sacrilegious. <laughs> Yeah, that's, okay. that seems like a summation of Austin is in a nutshell right now. Right. Just like, well, we had a wine bar and it closed. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. Jesus. You're not wrong. Hard. But I do think it's interesting that there's maybe a subtle criticism of this idea that, you know, everybody's going in to get some medication from this pharmacist. Because mm-hmm. of all of the adults that we see in this film, who do we Ooh. see? We see the sheriff, who's not good. He's obviously abusive to his son. Stan's we see, mom. We see Stan's mom briefly. We see Eddie's mom, who is maybe... Oh, wait, no, sorry. I, I, I meant Eddie's mom. Sorry, my bad. Oh, okay. It's it, it Stan's dad and Eddie's mom. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't remember Stan's dad at all. He's the rabbi. Oh, okay. But, I mean, it's so brief, right? Like, he's barely present. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very Whereas, brief. like, Eddie's mom 
I feel like you're actively meant to question whether or not she has his best interests in well, mind. Well, she's a character, though, in this movie. The other mm-hmm. adults aren't really characters. I yeah. thought that was Arnold Schwarzenegger from his Total Recall suit. I thought that that woman <laughs> was going to Two open weeks. up and he would be in. <laughs> now, how mad are you? Because they, they introduced the um, the pharmacist's daughter. That's a, that, I believe that's a film creation. That's She's not in the book. Yeah, I don't, she's not in the book. How fucking pissed were y'all that that bitch didn't die? Like, I was waiting for her to get, like, a Henry Bowers, like, one of his little lackey's deaths, and oh, I come was... come on, she's gonna grow up to be Elsa from I Know What You Did Last Summer, where she's running that, and she's gonna be all <laughs> haggard with glasses and a ponytail and an I know. abusive pot belly husband. You are calling a lot of things, like, for sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's just, I could just write putting that shit. right there. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, we're gonna go back. So, Joe doesn't like Richie. And that is what it is. I'm never gonna. We're never gonna change his mind. Let's go to Eddie. I okay. really like Eddie, and I really like Grazer's performance as Eddie. Yes, Ditto. it was cemented honestly when I saw Shazam this year, and mm. I was like, "This kid is great. I love this kid." Yeah, which if you look at the two performances, they seem similar, but they're actually very different. Mm-hmm. Like in Shazam, he's playing almost more of a Richie character where he's kind of selfish he's a little bit of a twerp but like the mannerisms and everything are he's still very clearly the same kid and the same actor but the two characters are completely distinct I'm not gonna lie when I saw Shazam I didn't know it was him until like I was reading reviews days later and was like oh fuck that's the kid from it (laughs) well because they grow so fast I mean that's what's so fucking crazy and like and that's honestly like and had to keep fucking hammering the sequel but you yeah. see like even just the shoots that they did for the second one they are so much older and it's like did they digitally de-age they had the to. children no they had to yeah they did <laughs> Finn Wolfhard shot up like six fucking inches so it's like you could tell for sure and like Jack Dylan Grazer even he still got that voice you know tendencies but even just revisiting the first one like a couple days I was like holy shit he is really young in this movie mm-hmm interesting now eddie does get though the aids joke in the movie which Mm -hmm. i was actually surprised given the setting of 89 that there wasn't more i don't want to say more homophobia because i don't think in 2019 or 2017 i guess a big studio film is going to put any kind anything like that in a film there is an f word in there okay you asked me to keep an ear out for it i know Bauer says it at some point. I think it's during the rock fight, but I can't be sure. But I saw people online comment. Okay. I don't remember hearing anyone say, I'm just going to say faggot. I don't remember hearing anyone say it. But yeah, I was surprised that there wasn't more of it in the film. Again, given the time period, because it's like post-AIDS crisis, you know, going into the 90s, blah, blah, blah. But with Eddie, I think the AIDS mention, I mean, it's treated kind of as a joke because it's like he's so worried about AIDS, which everyone was at the time. Yes, mm-hmm. I don't think it's belit. I mean, it, it's such a it's like a blink and you mi- or close your ears and you miss it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you would think then that people would also have that idea about Beverly, but it seems like the Beverly Dirty Girl references are her promiscuity. It's this idea yeah. that she's a girl who's easy, which mm-hmm. even the Losers Club themselves make that joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then they they pretty much disapprove that immediately fast. Yeah, like like within seconds. But yeah, the 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 joke with like, that I love with with Eddie and that is that that's like the go to at the time. I mean, growing having grown up throughout the late eighties, early nineties, it was one of those things where you thought like, all right, what is the absolute worst thing that you can get based on what pop culture is telling me? It, right. It, yeah. It was constantly like. You know, even when we would hang out, and if I'd cut, like I have a oh, yeah, not to go off too much a tangent, but I remember like when we were 
in middle school or high school. I think it was maybe early high school. I can't remember. Probably Wait, middle school. We have lots of our guests do this. How old are you? Oh, God. I'm, I was like 12. So No, no, no. How old are you right now? Oh, how old am I? I'm 36. Or okay. 35. I actually turned 35 today. So, oh, uh, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Forgot my age already. <laughs> <laughs> God. But yeah, so I remember being on the playground and I cut myself or something. And that night it dawned on me that I was like, oh God, I didn't even know. I didn't even look to see what cut me. What if there was germs on it? Like what if, the, what, 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 what is the worst thing I can get from, you know, from within my blood? And mm. the first thing I thought of was, you know, either like a staph infection or, and then like immediately went to like, you know, something like AIDS. And like, yeah. it really was like something that like was drilled into you. Like I remember even as a kid, like, People would warn you like, oh, well, you better watch out for your seats and, you know, the the payphones because the payphones, if you look for your change, they might have needles in it and shit like that. And it was just yep. so ingrained. Well, I think, Joe, this is something we talked about, I mean, I think in our speed dating episode. But um, I, when I was a teenager, I thought that I could get AIDS just by having gay sex. Like it wasn't, oh, like some, you had to have sex with someone that had AIDS. But no, just the act of gay sex would give you AIDS. So I was very terrified by that. It, even when I lost my virginity, you know, when I was a teenager, I was terrified that I got AIDS afterwards. God. Yeah. I know. Right? I grew up in the same times as you, Michael. I'm a couple of years older. Yeah. And I remember it wasn't so much in my life, but I remember that there was urban legends mm -hmm. that if you went to the bathroom after a gay person, like if you sat on the same toilet seat without wiping it down, you could get AIDS. Yeah, oh uh, that that was that and um like herpes and HPV. That, yep. that everyone told me about that one and well everyone has hpv so that, that's fine yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> go get tested everybody yeah <laughs> especially if you're a woman i do want to talk about the idea of reaganism though mm -hmm. if you'll indulge me because sure <laughs> i don't remember a lot about the book but in the research that i was trying to do for this episode, well remember that the book though the adults are in the 80s not the kids is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah it's, a 50, it's like 50s. Um, 50s and 80s. I think, or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, I saw somewhere that it was set in 79. No, no, no. And no. they moved the movie up 10 years. So. so that was the big change is that, you know, the book was the 50s for the kids and the adults were the 80s. But now in the movie, the kids are in the 80s and the adults are present day. So aside from the obvious Stranger Things potential influence, did the two of you think that there's anything significant about this? Because one thing that I did read was that 89 is when George Bush Sr. is in office. And then if you fast forward 27 years, which is presumably when the second film is set, it's set in 2016, which is the year of Trump's election. So oh. there were a couple of people who were speculating that Pennywise and Derry, by extension, is like a conservative ideology. And that's you know, hence this idea of like repressing sin and having things that adults are trying to hide or forget come back to haunt you. I love that read. I really do. But it's got to be I imagine that's I guess they could have changed the dates pretty easily because I mean, Trump got, you know, elected 2016 it's still early enough to have changed it for 2017 release. All right. Yeah. Look, <laughs> I like the read. I don't think anyone involved in this film was thinking about that. I think they were like, eh, it's going to make more sense for people who were watching this movie now for us to give them the 80s because people know the 80s at least more so than they know the 50s. And also, if we get a sequel, we can set it in present day. So why not then set it in 1990 or 1991 and have the film come out in the year that we're actually watching it? I think a lot of it is 
I think 80s nostalgia is just God. It, it, I mean, it's outlasted the decade by like yeah. what, 20 years now, and like yeah. 90s nostalgia, it's something weird about it. Like, it really hasn't taken on. Like, nobody wants to go back to plaid. Well, no, 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 no. no. So, I mean, because yeah, because yeah, Stranger Things didn't invent. I mean, not invent me, yeah, but like that wasn't when 80s nostalgia became a thing. I feel. Oh like, no, God no, no. Yeah, no. Like, like that show was a result of 80s nostalgia. Fucking even going back to what uh, su- uh, Super Eight. Which is yeah, very yeah. much the same fucking thing. I mean, if you look back at like even like the two thousands, I mean, like the, for me, like when I was in high, like high school in like the early two thousands, late late nineties, the whole seventies nostalgia was finally dying out. Like that seventies show was pretty much like the last gasp, and then all of a sudden you started seeing bands that were like really taking on and appropriating a lot of cultures from the eighties, and that has lasted since. Like it, it's it's not it's not even 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 now where nineties nostalgia is kind of putting its muscle in there a little bit but not really 80s nostalgia won't die so i do think like having it the, the set in 1989 was almost their way of like okay like to your point trace like we could still set this in modern times but also still get the 80s well you know i i, like, I reject to quote quentin tarantino i reject oh your hypothesis that <laughs> 90s nostalgia isn't taking up i agree that 80s because 80s has a much more distinctive look and it also does. way more pop culture stuff that comes out of the 80s. Whereas the 90s, I feel like it's mostly relegated to the late 90s. I think we're going to get a 90s a, a 90s nostalgia resurgence. It's just going to be more years until 80s can fucking get the fuck out of here. I think the biggest the biggest uh, showing of 90s nostalgia so far has been like Ariana Grande. Yes. <laughs> and, and honestly... Explain. <laughs> well, because if you look at a lot of... And, and honestly, she's actually starting to usher in a lot of like early aughts nostalgia, which is weird. But like, I would I would actually credit like Ariana Grande with just the the sort of mid to late '90s style of pop and R and B. But also, even if you look at like Frank Ocean, a lot of his style and even his marketing materials are just embedded into like strictly like 1992, 1994 with like a lot of the day glow and a lot of the bugle mm. boy fashionable sensibilities that he kind of puts into a lot of his like artwork and everything. And I feel like you're starting to see a little bit more 90s nostalgia strictly in a lot of the like the R&B because that is really where they're kind of like yeah. mining a lot of the sounds from. Mm-hmm. And even That's like with punk heyday. rock. Yeah, exactly. Oh, totally. And like even a little bit with a lot of the garage rock, like for a while you were seeing a lot of bands like trying to model themselves off of like Dinosaur Jr. And some of the stuff that was coming in from like the pre-grunge alternative wave. So it seems a little bit more subdued than the 80s. But you're right. I mean, because 80s is, is such a different defining moment i mean like yeah it's so much harder i mean and, and honestly the 90s for at least like a good five or six years were not a good five or six years at least good three years was still tr- figuring itself out which is why you get movies like don't tell mom the babysitter's dead in 1990 that literally feels like an 80s movie and ah, so mm-hmm. you know i love that movie God. well that, that that but that is the thing though. a lot of the early 90s like still feels like late 80s yeah I feel like it's also very representative in the horror genre, you know, in that post-Scream world. Like, 96 to 99, like, that, when people think of 90s, they think of those years. Yeah, I agree. And things coming out of those years. Maybe 95. Yeah, but we also have a collective agreement, like the residents of Derry, to just fucking forget the first half of the decade when it comes to horror in Mm -hmm. the 90s, which... Mm -hmm. It's not the discussion that we need to have here because <laughs> I want to talk about why this film broke out and I think we need to talk about ratings and CGI. Okay. By all means, lead where do you want to start? 
Okay, so <laughs> just because we were talking about the 80s and this idea that the film, for a variety of different reasons, got rid of the 50s setting so that they could modernize it a little bit, I think that that's a strategic marketing decision to say, Tracy even briefly said it, that if you set it in the 50s, it's not going to connect with people quite as much. Whereas if you mm -hmm. set it in the 80s, they've got all this nostalgia for it. And it yeah. just happens to be super popular. Yeah. But I'm interested, how did a film, aside from the Stephen King and the 80s, how did this break out to $117 million? I think had the miniseries not existed, it wouldn't have been as popular. Interesting. Coming back to the 90s. <laughs> well, no, no. So the book, it's interesting because the book is 86. The miniseries is 1990. So it wasn't that much of a gap. Like people knew that this book was worth something immediately and they immediately made something out of it. And if you think about children of the 90s growing up, everyone knew Tim Curry's Pennywise. Mm -hmm. Everyone yes. knew it. Yeah. More people, I can guarantee Iconic. you, have, have seen that miniseries and have read that book. I can guarantee it. I think there's something to be said about king too and mm -hmm. you know nowadays everyone i mean at this point it's just so obvious that we're like oh yeah king king ever you know he's always been there but you tend to get these great pockets that they almost like work like oils like wells sometimes in pop culture where there's just a collective consciousness of interest and intrigue with particulars in pop culture that you just don't realize until all of a sudden you hit that spike and then boom it all goes everywhere and i feel like it was that you know, and not, that's not to say that King didn't already have some sort of influence. I mean, he's never really vanished, per se. Like, I mean, there was that period for a while where he was kind of publishing mediocre books and just doing lost recaps on Entertainment Weekly. But, yes. yeah, like, he's <laughs> still... dark days. You know, yeah, they were very dark days. For but King. that was, like, after his car accident, you know? Like, that yeah. was, like, Dreamcatcher yeah. and fucking from a Buick <laughs> A, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, like, with it, I, I do think that it tapped into something that was multi-generational, you know, and like, I think the miniseries had a lot to do with it. And I also felt that for the first time in God knows how many ages, I, I would have to look back at the filmography of all the adaptations, but you're getting a real genuine big title of Stephen King coming back into theaters again. You mm -hmm. know, like, I can't even remember like the last big movie before that, though. Carrie. And that was a remake. Yeah. But, and that's the thing, too. Again, Carrie, it was the third adaptation, well, fourth, if you want to count Carrie, too, of Carrie. And mm -hmm. it didn't, I mean, it didn't flop, but it didn't do well. No. Well, in case people are, are forgetting what we're talking about, we're talking about the Chloe Grace Moretz 2013 yeah. Carrie. Directed, unfortunately, by Kimberly Pierce. I know. I feel so bad for her. But, yeah. but again, the, the original is iconic, but it doesn't have the same, like, among the youth, the cultural, mm -hmm. like, significance that fucking... It miniseries does. Yeah. Wait, are you speaking of the children? Yes. <laughs> the youth of America. But 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 that but again, I mean, I, I'm basing this on absolutely nothing. But you're targeting this for people who a read the book in the '80s, so older mm -hmm. people. Yep. And people who are our age, you know, in their late 20s to late 30s, who grew up with the miniseries. Yep. So wait, it's nostalgia on nostalgia. On like nostalgia. Meta nostalgia. <laughs> and that's saying something, though, when Carrie has an original film from the 70s, it has a miniseries remake in 2002, and also a weird sequel from the from 1999, which is not that bad. Go listen to our episode on Carrie 2. But it it has... It <laughs> has much more, like, like, people know about that. And people know about Carrie, but it's not as epic of a story. I also think maybe just the idea of a clown. Yeah, no, that's a huge part. 
Yeah. I mean, even think about leading up to it when we were hearing all those reports about like the the evil clowns. The clown sightings. Yeah. Ooh. Oh yeah. American Horror Story. One of the more iconic characters from that was like the killer clown there. I mean, there, yeah. I, I mean, it's a variety of factors. I, I think like Finn Wolfhard with Stranger Things definitely plays yeah. into the propelling of this of this generation. The '80s nostalgia. I mean, it was just it's a recipe. It's a perfect recipe. It is. It really was. And do y'all remember too when the first pictures of Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise? It was him sticking his head out the fucking drain pipe, and yeah. people oh my God, hated it's perfect. it. Oh no 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 no! People hated it. People yeah. were shitting on it, and that is why when I see you know bloody disgusting comments and people go ape shit over one detail, a story detail, or a news article, <laughs> or a picture that comes out, I'm like. Yeah. We all just shut the fuck up because it's probably gonna be fine. I mean, you know, it may not be. Fight again. We've Hashtag seen. Hashtag not my Pennywise. Yes, yeah. we haven't really discussed Skarsgård as Pennywise, but I think. Well, I guess we said you know, when he's not doled by CGI, he's good. He's amazing, yeah. and he yeah. looks good in it. And so when people freaked out about that picture, I was like, "You don't have to calm the fuck down. Like it's, it'll be fine." <laughs> Shockingly enough, the internet has given rise to outrage culture. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's at 11. Think, you talk about a clown. Think about when Heath Ledger was first announced. And everyone was like, oh, yes! are you kidding me? That's and where I went like, to as well. Now he's like the go-to, you know, icon for incels. So, but I mean, can we talk about Robert Pattinson? Oh, my God, guys, I just can't. Oh, is Batman? No, I'm, just, uh, I'm just kidding. Let's move on. No, but, but, no, you're absolutely <laughs> it's right. It's the same and thing. People, and people get so mad. And I'm like, look, could it be terrible? Yes. But you are assuming it will be based mm-hmm. on a picture. Yeah. I remember the Heath Ledger Joker when it was like the close-up of his face with the makeup on, which, by the way, looked good. It and great. And people didn't like it. But it's because it's, it doesn't look like what they are used to, which is the Jack Nicholson yeah. or um, the, the 60s Joker. I can't remember the other name. nostalgia. Cesar Romero. Cesar Romero. There you go. And same thing with this one. It's like, oh, he doesn't look like Tim Curry. And it's like, yeah, that's the Obviously. point. <laughs> He's not fucking Tim Curry. And that's honestly... It goes right to the strength of Skarsgård. I mean, the fact that, like, I mean, granted, I'm not scared of him, and I'm not really no. that scared of Tim Curry that much, but he did his own thing, and that's fucking Absolutely. unbelievable at a time when anyone just minds shit now. An entire like, generation, though, is scared of Tim Curry's Pennywise. They and, like, are. People oh, yeah. are terrified by that, and, I mean, we'll talk about it in a second, I guess, about the CGI, but his face makeup and the teeth that come out that are practical are much scarier than Bill Skarsgård's, you know, mm-hmm. CGI mouth teeth. <sighs> Jesus. Nevertheless, though, it's still fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problems with the character are not Bill Skarsgård. They are the CGI used to enhance him, yeah. which is distracting. It pulls away from his performance. I found this tidbit. Apparently, Pennywise only has four minutes of dialogue in this film. Yeah, I can believe it. But that's also like, like you know, when you go into Hannibal Lecter, that has 16 minutes say. of screen time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know about the miniseries, like how much screen time Pennywise has, but I would argue it's not that much more than this. It's not, no. And honestly, it's kind of unfair to base because, you know, obviously the miniseries is much longer. So it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. he might get a little bit more time in there, but in you know, when you actually like pair it up, it, it's pretty similar. And yeah, he they're on the they're in the periphery. Like, I mean, for the most part. And like, you know, when he does pop out, he pops out. I think Pennywise in this one is a little bit more present in this film but i think it's mostly because he appears in different ways because there's more technology to have him appear in that way you know right yeah which is a great segue yeah well so (laughs) we're going into the cgi i want to point this out so the company that did the cgi was rodeo fx they've been around since 07 and they've done a ton of films 
But I wanted to single out three films that they did this year. Okay. Then you can compare that CGI to the CGI in this movie. One was Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Hmm. One was... I'm going to go back to the couch. Uh, wait, wait, wait. No, <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Because well, you haven't seen it. I know, but you need to. Yeah. But anyway, that movie, the, the Pokemon, which are all CGI creations, look fantastic. Mm-hmm. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And Joe Crawl. Ooh. I well, knew you were going to say crawl. <laughs> <laughs> like, because the gators in that movie look really fucking good. If people haven't listened to our Patreon episode on crawl, God, we're just hitting that button tonight. I know, right? <laughs> if people haven't listened to that, Trace literally stuns me by revealing that those alligators are not CGI. Because I was... Are not, are not, sorry, are that not they practical. are CGI. Yeah, I was 100% convinced that they were practical. I've, yeah, I saw some behind the scenes shots of like when they grab when they grab Barry Pepper's arm and stuff, oh, yes. and it's just a guy like in a in a costume or something like that, like that has a gator head, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was the real, you know, is this going to work or is it not going to work? Sort of thing. A crawl was that like if those gators did not look realistic, the whole movie was going to fall apart. And oh, they did. that movie would have been shit with yeah. bad CGI. Which, to be honest, that was my other big thing with this movie, is that it wasn't scary because I didn't find any of the CGI convincing. Now, I will say, it must be the budget. It must must be this $35 million budget. Dude... The alligators in the twelve million dollar but, but that's creature I, feature. I, but, but again, you're talking about allocation. Where did this money go? I would argue that it went to the cinematographer who has worked on every fucking Park Chan Wook movie since Old Boy. And doesn't return for the sequel, unfortunately. Which oh, is, that uh, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> And your editor, who, you know, had worked, he was he worked on Mad Max Free Row without actually editing it, but he also edited Boz Lerman's The Great Gatsby, uh, the Prom Night remake, and, <laughs> but, but also, weirdly enough, the Wolf Creek and Rogue. So, right. weird, but, you know, your composer, well, did stuff for, well, actually, this year, Shazam, Hellboy, he did Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. He had a great year okay. in 2017, and he, yeah. I, I believe he's a student of Zimmer. Like uh, he works, he's worked with Hans Zimmer like a bunch in the past, and I, I actually really love his score in this. Does this person have a name? Benjamin Walfish. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think that the technical crew, minus the CGI people, were paid a lot of money. Here's the thing I, th- I would say about the CGI. I think it really matters on how you use it. I mean, like clearly these people can do a fucking great film. I mean, like even if you go back, you know, years and years and years ago, I mean, they have some really, really iconic uses of CGI. I mean, especially with like working on stuff like, you know, Edge of Tomorrow or even like, um, what was it? Uh, The Ghost Mm -hmm. Protocol, Mission Impossible. So like, you know, they do a lot of great stuff. And I think a lot of the, the reason why this doesn't work is because the way that you're utilizing it, there's this slightly uncanny valley-ness to it. And, like, you know, you're like, well, you know that's fake, but it also kind of looks real at times. And then the way that they have Pennywise move is just, it's it's too much at, at, at sometimes. And I, and I think because of that, the CGI just looks too cartoonish. Like, you're, you're asking Pennywise to do these things that aren't really practical. Okay, well, can we go through the set pieces and you two tell me what you think of them? Sure. Because sure. my issue is actually less with Pennywise than a lot of the creature effects that they try to put in. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got Georgie's arm from the opening sequence. That's the one that sticks out for me, is um his extending mouth. And I feel like that one is screenshotted a lot as being like the worst <laughs> effect yeah. in the movie. Yeah. 
I, I think that's a very bad effect. I agree. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's something that could have been done practically. Like, I don't yep. know what they were, you know. Which is unfortunate, too, because it's such an iconic scene. Like, when you think of it, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people think of this opening sequence with the boy in the rain and the sewer. And I'm not trying to be so, so nitpicky, but he doesn't even use the floating line in the opening scene, which has always bothered me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he doesn't use it until he shows up in the basement, right? I think, no, I think I think the first mention is when he sees Eddie and he has, like, the upside-down triangle of balloons. Oh, right. Okay. I think that's the first time it's mentioned. I want to say that's it, too. Yeah. Okay, so the next one is the headless World War II veteran that attacks Ben in the library. This one works for me. Oh, yeah. I I like it, too. (laughs) Actually, if there's one scene in the whole movie that I think is just genuinely frightening from beginning to end, it's the library sequence. I 100% agree. You get the very It Follows-esque, like, peripheral horror with the librarian that stares and smiles in the the creepiest fucking way. Yeah. And the, 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 hey, fat boy. Yeah, and honestly, like the the way that the headless creature is, it almost feels like very like Evil Dead stop motiony. For yes, me. I agree. Does. I actually find the movement that it has. Um, I love that you go to Evil Dead, and I was like, it reminds me of the House on Haunted Hill remake. It from does. <laughs> when, the, when the doctor runs, walks into the camera. Yes, like, it freaks oh, me out. Oh, I hate that scene so much. Yeah, that, that's, that's great. Oh God, that that sent uh, me and my friends like out the fucking theater in high school when that happened because it was like really the first time other than maybe jacob's ladder like a few years ago i was like holy shit what the fuck was that (laughs) yeah that is so unnatural okay yeah interesting we're all in agreement that that seems a good one Mm -hmm. eddie's leper at the house is next like really this i think is one of the worst ones for me really i like it (laughs) i think it's fun too much the the whole cgi face like it looks too fake it's yeah. super fake. The eyeballs do not look convincing. The other issue for me is that it's the sequence that immediately follows the last scare where we already had a kind of stumbly... Mm-hmm. The two creatures look almost identical, the leper and the headless creature. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Did you skip the painted lady or is that next? Uh, I may have skipped the painted lady. Okay. Okay. I like the painted lady. I do too. I, I recognize that the CGI is not great on it, but the way mm-hmm. it's because it's in the dark for the most part. Yeah, I I got a lot of shit from my co-host because I thought this was like one of the more frightening scenes, and I couldn't stop fucking thinking about the flute falling down. But like they're all like, "Well, it's just a ripoff of something that's in Mama to lesser effect or something like that." And then I watched the scene in Mama, and I was like, "Eh, I think the CGI is kind of shitty in that, and it's too bright, brightly lit." Yeah, I think the darkness saves this scene, and I think this scene is legitimately frightening. Mm-hmm. Because it's yeah. in such a close quarters. But, yeah, um, and I'll, there's I'll, something... Sorry, go ahead, Trace. No, I was... Uh, I, sorry, no. Go ahead and talk about the Painted Lady. I was going to move on to the Leopard because y'all are wrong. Oh, just the the Painted Lady looks like a convincing work of art. And mm-hmm. I recognize that it's not good CGI, but I don't... I'm not bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's what makes it uncanny for me, is that it looks like a living work of art as yeah. opposed to something that's meant to be convincingly like authentically real yeah yeah that's a great point i get that i understand that and i do agree the leopard does not look like a human being it looks like a fucking hills have eyes type (laughs) monster (laughs) does yeah with some snot coming out of its nose hole but i still i mean it's a quick shot it's like super fast and i think it's an effective little scare okay i do feel robbed though of him asking eddie for a blowjob yeah seriously like that's the thing it's like i 
look if there's if this is a rated r movie like i don't know why they pull their punches when it gets to the sexual stuff you know like patrick hockstetter is supposed to have this really fucking messed up scene yeah. with bowers and that would have and first off i love owen teague and like i don't know why they underused him and then for them to like kind of pull back on that it's like were they just worried about the ratings i don't, I don't know like I think because it's taboo to have children engaged in any kind of sexual activities yeah. now. Yeah, yeah maybe point. so. But but yeah, but I know I'm in agreement with you on that though, Michael. Because I, I mean, it would have opened up a whole. It would have been more appropriate for this podcast because uh, listeners, if you don't know, yeah, there is a sexual um, handjob scene between Patrick and Henry in the book. Then Henry is, uh, sorry, Patrick is killed by leeches in a refrigerator that he keeps with animal corpses because he's a serial killer. And it's really good. Which tracks better. Like this idea that Bowers just goes from, he's kind of casually sociopathic. And obviously you're meant to infer that he's going to kill that cat had his dad not stopped by. But it feels like shorthand, like, oh, you all know that he's bad, right? Mm Mm-hmm. They don't bother to invest the character work in him. He's just a generic bully. He's, yeah, he's a one-dimensional bully. Yeah. And then they try to rescue it by saying, oh, well, he's actually just the byproduct of a bad parental situation. I'm sorry, and I'm going to say something maybe contentious here, but whatever. I was on the dad's side. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kid, like, deserved what was coming to him. Yeah. Okay, the next thing we have is Beverly's bloody hair attack. Love it. In the bathroom. I did too. I think it's stylishly gorgeous. It's yeah. kind of reminiscent of, um, I was going to say The Thing, maybe, but maybe not. But Because the hair stuff isn't in the book, and I really like that effect of the hair, like, yeah. pulling her closer and closer and closer. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's so, you know, palpable for anyone that lives. <laughs> like, yeah. we all have hair that gets in drains, and it's, like, disgusting to ever, like, put your fingers in drains or anything like that. So I think that's a, it's a very relatable scene. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, though, because it's another form of gendered attack. Like, this film is not afraid to say, hey, Beverly's a girl. All of her stuff happens in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Both of her attacks happen in a bathroom, and they both have to do with, like, more cosmetically oriented things. I mean, it makes sense because she gives herself the haircut that the hair comes back. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It just feels like another one of those, like, hey, don't forget that she's a girl. Yeah, like, and, yeah, and movie, especially with, it. like, the whole coming-of-age aspect. It, it's, it seems like a like a, a period like menstruation <laughs> yeah menstruation <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know illusions and parallels there yeah it's a little it's on the nose okay uh so we've got georgie in the basement which i feel like we're all not super in love with no wait really no <laughs> it, it's just that that well, constant splatter of just like ugh, i don't know I think because what sticks out to me, though, is when he finally lifts Georgie up and, like, slaps him down. I really like that. But I don't, yeah, I don't like the... (laughs) It's tricky, too, because at that point, you had seen that a million times in all the marketing. So you're like, oh, this is supposed to be scary, except I've seen it for months. But the one thing that you hadn't seen, though, is him, like, lifting up Georgie like a fucking popsicle stick puppet and just slamming yeah. him on the ground. And I think that effect is really good. But, yes, the rushing to, to, to Bill is not great. That scene right there is, like, a perfect encapsulation for why, like, CGI horror is always problematic for me. Is because, like, when there's things that you can't physically do and you know that can't be physically done, it's not scary to me. Because yeah. I want to be, like, shocked that they were able to do it while also knowing that they 
did it with some sort of realism in mind. Well, that's know? why in the Nibold Hell sequence, though, whenever, like, uh, and when he's confronting Eddie and he's kind of doing, like, a dance, like, slowly to him, like, where mm-hmm. he's moving his arms, like, that stuff is really yeah. creepy. And I oh, wish totally. he had done more of that. Yeah, I agree. So the slide projector and Love the giant that. Pennywise. That's one of the the best additions okay I think, to this good <laughs> i was like if y'all don't like this goddamn set piece i'm gonna be so mad because i really do like it too even though it's a cheap jump scare it is i'm 50 50 i love the projector i think it's actually the most effective but scare. you don't like giant pennywise i don't like giant pennywise because it's exactly what you just said michael it's so completely unbelievable mm-hmm. they obviously shot bill skarsgård on his hands and knees <laughs> and then they were just like here let's just embigify him yeah, my, my thing that I like about it for the most part is just it's when you're in a closed quarters and there's something large, there's something that psychologically is scary to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I really had wished that it had just been the ah, and then like then it was done. And then yeah. it wasn't him crawling around because honestly, he does this thing where it's like, well, if you could do that, then why doesn't he just get him? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Why does I... opening the garage door scare him away? Yeah. I think that's a common complaint, though, about not even just the film and the miniseries, but the book in general. Mm-hmm. He could have grabbed them anytime. Yes, but then I do think, and maybe this is the book, but the book does, it's obviously, it's, it's like Freddy fucking Krueger. He, he is fed by fear. He gets his strength from fear, so he can't just pop in and just take someone. I don't know. And it also yeah. could just be that he's a playful, like, little villain that he likes the hunt a little bit more yeah. so than just like getting someone it feels like the film is leaning into the he feeds on fear idea right because that's what stops him from consuming uh, beverly thank you yes that's what prevents him from eating beverly at the end mm-hmm. yes yeah which again i think is why like he has to fuck with them to get them to be scared to give him strength which i mean you know we're going into like freddy's dead slash freddy versus jason territory yeah yeah well, there's only so many <laughs> there's only so many ideas about monsters terrifying children to be fair though both of which were released after it the book and the miniseries yeah right okay so uh... Really, the only other thing that's kind of left, I mean, there's obviously the whole climax, but I don't really consider it a set piece because it feels just like an extended Okay, wait. I was going to say the house is what's left. I love the house sequence. The coffin with the dolls uh, and the girl hanging in the closet, which we've talked about. The girl hanging, I think, is fine. Um, But yeah. No, the lack of legs looks exactly like, uh, my God, looks exactly like the kid at the beginning. With no arm. Mm, yeah. I mean, it, it's a little too, like, well, it's a flash, so we don't have to spend too much yeah. time on it. Yeah, you it's know. briefer. Okay, effects aside, I like the whole Nebel Tell sequence as a whole. I think it's a really fun, scary set piece. And granted, yes, most of that is relegated to Eddie once he's fallen through the floor. But I just, I don't know. I think it's fun. I agree. I mean, I, I think, like, as a fun, like fun it's a fun 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 fun. yeah Yeah, like is that sort of thing yeah it's great in terms of plotting and stuff it's mostly just execution in in certain areas where they think that they're being scary like and the whole clown sequence is just is just like i'm waiting to get to the next sequence but when it's actually like it's actually pretty gorgeous when bev actually shoves the rod into his head and you see like the thing like just 
float and and it just pause it like kind of freezes like the matrix in a little bit and i like that i mean i think that looks gorgeous yeah until his wonky eye stuff happens but yeah yeah yeah. but also the thing with his dance when he's like you know slowly going towards eddie there's like the music cues like every time he moves his arms like you get a boom like on a trumpet Mm -hmm. like sound i love Mm -hmm. i love it when music cues like align with a character's movements i think it's really cool (laughs) yeah I'm rushing us along. I know. Wait, I just wanted to say one thing, though. What are y'all's thoughts on the Pennywise dance inside the coach? Hate it. Hate it. I love it. I hate it. <laughs> I, I think it's. I think it's wonderful as a GIF, and I and I'm glad that it's it exists out there for me to put on every like promotional thing that we do. But <laughs> when it comes on, I'm like, do they think that this was scary? Like, I don't know. I thought it was him trying to be funny. I thought. I, I, I... <laughs> I didn't think it was trying to be scary. I thought he was like, look at me. I'm a clown. Mer, mer, mer. <laughs> so let the record show that Trace's sense of humor aligns with Pennywise. It yeah. does. It does. <laughs> so if you're down there and, you know, you're trying to find Bev, he does this thing. Or if you are Bev in this situation, because I think Bev's the one that sees it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she is. You're cracking up. <laughs> kind of. I'm, I'm also kind of like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> He's so cute. <laughs> I mean, I guess in the sense that, like, for me, it just I'm I'm just like, what a show off! Like, what a dickhead! Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Some people hate that, and I think it's really funny. Well, I think at this point, you're meant to be ramping up towards the climax. Like, this is the closest we've come to one of the losers actually getting killed and yeah. potentially eaten and instead you've like hey let's have bill skarsgård do a little russian kick dance but even if you haven't read the book or seen the miniseries you know they are not gonna kill bev and i mean i was going way back to the fucking beginning i didn't I know that this. trace i thought this was a standalone film that was going to end i know <laughs> and i get what you said before you know oh like you know she's the one that's not afraid she's like you know fine i just hate that plot device it goes back to them breaking up but it takes her being kidnapped to get them to team up again to go rescue mm-hmm. her she needs to be rescued and i hate yeah. it well and if you think about it i mean we haven't really touched on mike much like the film good one trace oh fuck yeah i mean really if you think about it this is the story about a group of outcasts who get whittled down in importance until really it's a relationship between a couple of white heterosexual boys who become a vigilante team against a clown (laughs) yeah sure pretty much (laughs) that's your reductionist uh summary why why didn't you just say that instead of drag us on for 20 minutes about the plot of the movie (laughs) I'm trying to get equal airtime after your three-act oral history. Um, it was really <laughs> quick, by the way, but thank you. Sure. We'll go back to that in the edit. I enjoyed both, <laughs> for what it's worth. Yeah, I mean, the Mike Hanlon thing is really confounding, because I think that on the surface, they probably saw, like, well, you know, he has a huge role in getting them all together, and, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that he he's important in the second one. But, like... No, like, you know, a lot of his importance comes from what he experienced as a kid. So you kind of should have maybe figured out some way to get him involved a little bit more. Yeah. He definitely has more to do as younger Mike Hamlin here than he does in the miniseries where he almost feels like in some scenes you're like, oh, hey, hey, Mike, I I didn't see you there. I forgot about you. (laughs) How's that future drinking problem coming? (laughs) Seriously. Sorry, I want to bring us back to one final thing because I told myself 
that I would bring it up. And I think there's just Uh-oh. too many parallels between the way that this movie presents children in small towns with absentee parents at key focal moments of conservatism in U.S. history mm-hmm. without addressing the scary stories in the room. So oh, what right. do you guys make of the depiction of childhood horror as presented in it compared to scary stories to tell in the dark. I mean, Michael, I know you said that this is really a tale, like a coming of age story, and it's not about the frights, but both of these films do have scenes that are meant to scare people. Oh, totally. And arguably the set pieces involve the same kind of thing where a monster walks towards a Mm -hmm. child who is powerless to defend itself. But I would argue that it is so much more effective and I'm interested to hear your perspective because I know the Trace is just going to say, oh, well, Scary Stories is for kids and this is for adults. Uh, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to tell you this right now. I thought that the set pieces in Scary Stories were better than the ones in It. And I actually thought that they were scarier than the ones in It. Ugh. I would have to go back and forth because there are definitely things in Scary Stories that I thought were unnerving because a lot of it dealt with body horror, which... Yeah, okay. I've said this a lot in like past episodes of like the Halloween is a Losers Club, but I think one of the more untapped, you know, genres of horror, subgenres of horror right now for millennials and, and just the, the sort of selfie culture is body horror. Like there should be more body horror right now because mm-hmm. we are so we don't want to admit it and we want to be, you know, not so egotistical, but like we are a vain culture. I mean, we are a visual culture. So by proxy, we are a vain culture. So you know, I'm right now currently dealing with like severe dermatitis and all this other shit. And so I'm constantly always in, in terrified about like my appearance and all this other stuff. So for scary stories, the stuff involving like the body horror of turning into a scarecrow and the emasculation that comes from that and the idea of the spider with the, the bite and even yeah. being sucked into this like weird formless Ugh. creature. Like there's something really like disarming and terrifying about that. But at the same time, like the atmosphere of the movie doesn't necessarily like scare me as much as it, like the things that scare me in it are the in town stuff, like the, the realism of the bullies, like the fact that like the losers here never feel as if they're in a safe place. Even in, even when they're in the barrens, they're, you know, attacked with, like, the, you know, the rock fight. If they're at home, they have negligent parents. If they're on the streets, they have to deal with constant, you know, stuff going on in the town. Like, it always seems as if they're at risk. And, like, I guess you could make the same argument for scary stories. But... Well, I'm actually looking at the consequence review right now. <laughs> it's for Michael Pimentel. Scary stories chill in the dark isn't really all that scary. And here I am like, I thought it was scarier than it. Yeah. Well, you're allowed to have that opinion, Trace. I'm just interested because, slight spoiler alert, Trace and I are going to record a mini-sode discussing PG versus R-rated horror. Mm, and PG-13. the way that people approach it... Sorry, PG-13. I find the dialogue that came out around scary stories to be, to use your own term, Trace, very reductive because people's argument just seemed to be, oh, well, it's for kids. So you're a fucking idiot if you didn't find it scary. And I'm like, well, that's one argument, but that's not the basis on which this film is made. And a lot of the time, the arguments seem to be based in this idea that, oh, it's based on children's stories. And therefore, this enterprise that is captured in one medium 
is apparently meant to be taken exactly the same way when it's adopted into a different medium in a completely different age with completely different visual techniques. Like the thing that people seem to latch onto in scary stories was how closely they had replicated the scary images from the books with almost complete disregard to the way that the story itself was actually crafted. Yeah, and that's I, mean, what I know that's, me. that's what my friend certainly uh, took issue with was the fact that they just took the images as if, like, kind of like um, what people accuse putting images in books in the first place. It's just like, well, you're just going to look at the photos without actually understanding the context. And I think that that was one of the the criticisms that I don't know if I disagree with. I mean, I think it it definitely takes away from the impact. I mean, I think one of the, the big parts of the Scary Stories books is that you get the imagery, but what ultimately scares you are the twists than the story itself, you know, mm-hmm. later on, like you think like, what would I do in that situation? Right. You know, going into the idea of the sort of latchkey kid ethos of both movies, I think it captures that a little bit more because I feel it's more, it's grounded more in reality. And I don't know what to make of that. I, I wonder if it's just because the, the aesthetic and scary stories is so seemingly comic booky. I mean, I loved it. I mean, the minute, the first 15 minutes, I'm like, oh my God, this is like aesthetic porn for me because I just feel like I'm walking through like, you know, Michael's Halloween decorations and stuff like that. I love it. But it also didn't necessarily feel like reality to me. And I I wonder if it's because traditionally depictions of 60s culture seem to be heightened and based solely on like what previous pop culture, you know, mediums have made of it. It also seems a little anachronistic, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was interesting to having, seeing the reactions to that film at the same time as Quentin Tarantino. Jesus. Uh, But because (laughs) Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had actually just come out, people were like, oh, wow, look at these depictions of the 60s and how they're playing on the fabrication of the 60s as something that we have collectively decided it will look like this with these kinds of cars and these bandanas and so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like the same thing when you watch Vietnam movies and they're playing rock and roll songs that were not charting in the slightest, you know. Yeah. Like, it, it's such selective history that you get on there. And I and, and with Scary Stories, I think a lot of it just... I think it, 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 it just, it's where the source material is. And I actually thought that the film did a pretty good job in being able to toe the line between being a children's movie, which I don't really think it is, and being more of an adult film. I mean, just the, the scenes at the police station alone... Look, I view that film as the equivalent of something like Poltergeist or Gremlins. Like, I wouldn't call Poltergeist or Gremlins family or children's films, Mm -hmm. but they're the closest thing to family horror that we, like, that you could get to back then. And that's what I view scary stories as. It's not for kids, but it's like that same, like, subgenre of horror film. Here's what I applaud the movie for, because I was worried that it was going to do this, and I guess it kind of does this a little bit, but this is not to spoil too much, and you can take this out if it's spoilerish, but. It doesn't do the Jumanji thing where it's like, well, everything that is at stake is back and we're all fine and everything's right. good and blah, blah, blah. Right. Even yeah. though they kind of hint at it towards this, like a sequel idea. Yeah. But the fact that like those who perished or vanished stay vanished. I yeah, like yeah. that a lot. I do too. Yeah. For that, it felt it was a little bit more adult in that tone because traditionally in a lot of kids movies, they just everything kind of goes back. Yeah. Just totally how real life works. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, do we want to play a game or do we want to just wrap it up? Well, we can play. I'm game for whatever. 
Okay, so the game is based on a fun principle that my friends and I used to do, which was if you had to live in a horror film, which horror film would it be? Because even though they're obviously scary, there's something enticing about it. And I think the fact that Derry and It are based in this nostalgic small town vibe, I think a lot of people would actually find very endearing, particularly depending on if you're a red or blue state. Mm Mm-hmm. So I challenge the two of you, which of Stephen King's various books or film adaptations would you like to live in, knowing that you still have to encounter whatever horrors he's got planned? Ooh. <laughs> hmm. I would like to live in Stand By Me. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, The Body. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, I'll think of a fun one. I'll think of a fun one. Actually, no, 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 that's, that's, not a, that's not a fun one, though. Because, I mean, honestly, like, Ace Merrill is a fucking nightmare. He is, but it's a real nightmare. It's not yeah, like Yeah, you could, you could kind of evade him. Uh, I, could, I could kill him. Yeah, Guaranteed you could, you're yeah. also going to vomit at that pie-eating contest. So. Oh, God. I don't. I actually haven't read the novella or the short story, so I don't know if that part's in the book. But that's the. I will say that Gordy gets his big time, and to the yeah. point where at the end of the novel, he's almost like hospitalized. Oh wow! Yeah, because Ace finds him walking on the side of the road and like nearly beats him to death. Oh geez. dear! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's Castle Rock's a real fun place to be. <laughs> I'm trying to think of also. I guess I would say here. This is a weird one. I would say, but. Maybe Pet Cemetery. Okay. If only because, you know, just stay away from the, the Micmac burial grounds and you'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, and like lock your fucking doors so your children can't go near the road. Exactly. And keep your medicine bags like, you know, hide, hidden away in the closet or something. I'm going to cop out again because I was actually, and we discussed this in our mini-sode, but um, I was going to say 11 because I like the idea of having a time portal to the 1960s. <laughs> Hey, like it leads to some some wonderful uh, stories and it people. does, it does. Joe, mm-hmm. what what's yours? So it's like none of them. I hate Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King's the worst. Uh, people will hear more of my thoughts on Stephen King if you listen to the mini set that comes out on Friday. But you'll also learn that I haven't read a ton of Stephen King, so my options are not good. I've basically got The Stand, I've got It, I've got Carrie, or I've got The Mist. Ooh, oh God, God. Are, you are you are <laughs> fucked in every situation. I guess I'm going to pick Carrie. Well, the town burns down. <laughs> Is the whole town burned down? Because I was like, I'll just skip the prom because I, no, in, like, in I the, fucking hate the prom. The so. majority of the town. Yeah, the whole town goes down in the book, which is what we thought was going to happen in the remake with Chloe Grace Moritz, and they copped out on that shit. They did. I, I, I was so convinced that that's what they were going to do because the trailer made it seem like she's walking through the town burning things. So, Oh, yeah, I remember that. She doesn't do that? No. I mean, there's like the, the gas. Oh, hey, again. I know it's not a Carrie podcast. The one thing that remake does better than any other iteration of that story is that it gives fucking Chris the best death out of any of the book or both movies. It is the best death for Chris. And it's so great. And the only reason why I would even recommend that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And answer. Not because they're all going to laugh at you. No, that's yeah. not even. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I was requested to do that. I will have you know. That is a payoff. Someone asked me to do that to Trace. Who did that? Oh, someone on Twitter said that. Okay, yeah. Anyway, okay, well, fine. Just don't be an asshole and get out of the town. That's fine. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm dead. <laughs> so I clearly burned up. <laughs> um, okay, so 
Before we announce what we're covering next week, Michael, this is your chance to plug things. Plug away. Well, we got a huge, huge fall season ahead of us on the Losers Club. We're going to be covering uh, It Chapter 2, uh, obviously, and we're going to be talking to Ben Wallfish, and I believe Andy oh. Machete is going to be on the podcast. Holy shit. And trying to get Bill Hader, just because uh, he was such an MVP in this movie, so hopefully we get that, but if not... We're going to be, I'm working, currently working on a cover story for Creepshow, and we're going to be covering it week to week uh, as it premieres on Shudder, so nice. that'll be hey. fun. And then we're going to be finishing off Halloweenies. Uh, we have New Nightmare that uh, that just released, and we also released our interview with Heather Landenkamp, which was a lot of fun. Yes. And then we're going to be going into Freddy vs. Jason and A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, the remake from 2010. And <laughs> Finishing with a bang. Oh, no, we're going, we're really um, hurting ourselves because in November we're going to be reviewing all of uh, Freddy's Nightmares, the TV show. Oh, my. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We thought we got away, but then one of our listeners sent us a hard drive with every episode. So we were like, holy shit, we're going to have to do this now. Oh man, those are some loyal fucking listeners. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it was it was it'll be nice. It'll be nice. So um, I've watched a couple episodes and it is rough. Oh no. See, I would have recommended if you ever get around to the Friday the Thirteenth films and you end up doing that TV show was actually a lot of fun. It was. I I used to love that show too, and I, I haven't seen all the episodes, but I I remember being like, wow, this is kind of an interesting twist. Them taking just a banner name, I guess. But exactly. Yeah. 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 But And then December, I think we are going to finally... I made a bad promise last year that we were going to do Black Christmas after Halloween because it's kind of like the sister original one in a way. Mm-hmm. But we got too busy and we weren't able to do it. So every so often on our socials, everyone's always like, you know, where's Black Christmas? So I think we're going to finally do it this year. Oh, see, I will do Black Christmas. For oh, sure. nice. Well, then we're we'll definitely do one. Yeah, oh, absolutely the original one. Yeah. But it's also perfect timing, though, because the other remake is coming out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Which is currently filming in, like, the summer, which is crazy. So insane. It's so I pity weird. their editor. Yeah, seriously. I mean, because they can't change the date unless they just push it a year. So that'll be fun. So we'll have a Halloweenies regular Black Christmas. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we actually have one thing to plug as well. So we announced this on our socials, and we've mentioned it on the podcast before that both Joe and I are going to be at Fantastic Fest this year. But we can finally announce that we are doing a live performance or a live recording of the Horror Queers podcast with Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge star Mark Patton on Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge. And oh my god. <laughs> if I have to watch that movie one more time in my life, I'm going to kill myself, but I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hilarious that after the last time we said we were never going to watch it again or at least take a multi-year break, and then it was like, the opportunity has come up, and we were like, yes, absolutely. We would like to do that immediately. Please. That is Thank incredible. You. <laughs> it was really funny, because we I, we get so many requests to cover Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and I'm like, it's really fucking obvious, which is why when y- y'all asked us on to Halloween, so we were like, oh yeah, let's do that. Let's yeah. do that, because it makes more sense, and we don't have to do it on our show for a long, long time. And then we also did Kill by Kill. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like two months later and we, and we had also done an article on it like three months before we were on y'all's halloweenies episode so we yeah, i remember that yeah i have watched that movie three times in a year and now it's about to be four. Mm-hmm. Oh my lord but this is the best way to go out though oh for sure like <laughs> yeah. all right i'm gonna I, I have to fly down to talk i was pl- trying to plan i was already kind of planning on going to fantastic fest now i'm definitely going so this is i gotta see this good you should 
but yeah, so we'll be there at Fantastic Fest. Hopefully, Michael will be there too. If not, we'll have some other consequence people to see. But um, yeah, if you want to reach us on Twitter, we'll wrap this supersized episode up. You can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I am at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. And you can also email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page. If you have the time, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. And as we've mentioned multiple times this episode, I won't belabor the point, but uh, if you want extra content, you can go to our Patreon page. Like we said, we'll have a mini-sode on Stephen King, and next week is our episode on It Chapter 2. Joe! Mm-hmm. What are we covering next week? I'm so excited. Okay, so we are beginning a two-month stretch, a thematic stretch of eight weeks, all about camp, and we have decided to kick things off with... <gasps> Jason goes to hell? Oh my god. <laughs> Good luck. I was like, is this the one with the slug? And Trace was like, yes. <laughs> jo- uh, Joe does not like this franchise. I don't think it's good, but I mean, I think it's a fun franchise. It's a fun franchise, but that movie is... Whew, yeah. It is so bizarre. Fucking crazy. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've never seen any Friday the 13th movie, that's okay. Don't start with this one. <laughs> no, I'm saying you can, because it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> This movie has no, like, care about plot whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense. I almost want to meet the person who started with that movie and then went (laughs) forward. (laughs) See what their thoughts were. Actually, that's a good point. If you've never seen a Friday the 13th film, don't watch any of them before next week. Watch Jason Goes to Hell. And then try to figure it out. And No, but uh, then message us. Fucking tweet us. Seriously. Email us. I want to know what is going through your mind when you're watching this clusterfuck of a movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So. Camp. Yeah. And then you go to the first one, you're like, why is it the mother? What, 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 what's going on here? Like, yeah. What's with all the chunky knits? I don't get it. <laughs> oh my God. That's a good phrase. Chunky knits. So yeah. Okay. Jason goes to hell next week. And I think on that note, we can cross out it parentheses chapter one. No, it colon chapter one. Yes. And cross out horror queers. This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.